0: Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message.
1: We turn to um, um, the book of Job, chapter 42. Let's hear this reading. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. This is God's word for his people.
0: Yeah you blessed or released until all this is remade
1: How's everybody? Great, great. Good. It's good to see you guys. Um, if, right out of the gate, if you have a moment when you're like, Brett seems a little off this morning. What's up? Um, I, I am a little under the weather. I um, had a big boy ear infection last night, enough to take me to the emergency room, and, uh, and they uh, loaded me up with amazing things like antibiotics and steroids. So <clears throat> if I say something deeply heretical, that's what that's about. Just <laughs> heads up um, as we go, but I'm, I'm doing all right. And we wanted to take the next six weeks to talk about what is the most common and reoccurring question, not just in our culture, but like through all of history about faith. Uh, so little things, you know, and it's the question of suffering, of, of what do we do with it? And not, not like the inconveniences, you know, for example, last night, my head hurts, um, I am able to go to a hospital, which is a thing. There's people there who have training. I have insurance. They can give me a prescription. And in a few days, I'm going to be bright, shiny, and bushy-tailed and ready to go. Right? I mean, that's, that's not, it's not fun, but it, that's not suffering. You know, like, that's inconvenient. And in our world, we have so many ways um, to help turn what could potentially it be, you know, real suffering, and, and kind of just downgrade it, you know, into inconvenience. Um, but still, many of us, and all over the world, deal with real stuff that is really big. And, and often, I think it's the stuff that's senseless, the senseless suffering, the things that we cannot find a, so this is what you do, or so this is what the answer is. That makes, that makes sense to me, those are the things that kind of have haunted us the most. And, you know, let alone the stuff that you see on on the news and on our screens, which imports um, the difficulty and the tragedy and trauma of the whole world right into our little pocket, you know, uh, on our phone. But I was just thinking about you guys and people that I know that carry some really Heavy stuff, like why do some people struggle so much with certain sins and destructive patterns that other people just don't in the same way? They're, maybe their sobriety is so fragile and there's not really a reason why it seems senseless. I, I know people, uh, wonderful people, that they deal with health issues and disability um, over and over again. You, people have lost loved ones either, either to illness or murder. In our congregation. Uh, I was called um, a woman in our congregation, a friend of mine that I really respect, Paula Miles, and uh, to talk with her a little bit about this. And um, Wonderful family, they love the Lord. Um, they had, many years ago, they had a, a little baby girl named Faith who, who didn't make it to her first birthday. And, and the struggle that that put their family through. And then just a year ago, they Son in his early 20s, Creighton, one day just out of the blue um, has a stroke. And they found out that there had been a fungus growing in his brain. That's a thing, apparently. And it broke off, traveled around in his system, lodged in his heart. And he needed both serious brain surgery and serious open heart surgery at the same time. And he's going to make it. He's all right. It's been a year today, I think, from the surgery. Um, which, is, which is pretty awesome. But can you imagine as a family going, here we go again, here we go again. And when we're not busy distracting ourselves with all of the ways that we do that from you know, sugar to lattes to Amazon, we realize that, that the world, guys, like sucks. Not all of it. Some of the world is great. But a lot of it is really hard. And what, how do we answer that as people of faith who believe that God is good? A, that God is there, and B, that he's good. It wouldn't be hard if we didn't believe those two things. God's not there, that's easy. God's not good, someone could say, well, I figured that out on my own. You know, that, that, if we want to hold those two things, it's quite the challenge. And I want to do something that's probably a little on this side of impossible, and dive into um, a book in our scripture that is wrestling down some of these same things. Now, it's quite the odd book. Um, I'm talking about the book of Job. And it it is, um, I I think for most of my life growing up in church, well-meaning, Bible-loving people referred to the book of Job in some ways that they were earnest about, but really weren't helpful. And I think kind of missed the point. Um, quite honestly, because people will say, "Well, it, well, that, that's what the book of Job is about. It's answering those questions." And so we're going to take a look and and see if that if that actually does that that thing, if it answers questions for us. And so I just want to talk about it a little bit. First of all, it is our oldest story in the Bible. Interestingly enough, Moses we we believe, seems to, wrote um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the beginning of our scripture. Job seems to predate Moses by about 400 years at least. That means that our oldest story, the story that, that we've, people have been holding on to for that comes up on almost 4,000 years ago, people have been holding on to the story. It is the question of suffering. That's the thing that we, we could say we started scripture with that one. What do we do with this? How are we gonna wrestle this down? Secondly, people um, have been asking for those thousands of years, is this, is this history? Like, did this actually happen? Um, is, or is it like a parable? You know, it, it's a little tough to tell, really, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, Job is not an Israelite, um, and no one in the story is from Israel, which makes him completely different than every other book in all of Scripture. Um, every other book in scripture is about um, the Israelites and their, and their journey with God. Um, Job is not one of those people. Second of all, the land of Uz, which is where he lives, and that's actually the inspiration for the name, the land of Oz, um, he lives in the land of Uz, which means like the land of teaching or instruction, which is a little fuzzy. And, and out of 42 chapters, we get two chapters of story at the beginning, which got 90% of the press of what I heard about the book of Job. And then at the end, there's a little half chapter. And it's really 40 chapters in the middle. Like the whole thing is, is pages and pages of poetry. Maybe even songs of people having this conversation about suffering. It's, it's almost a little like, like, a, like a dramatic, like an opera like, there's, there's this setting, maybe you could see on the stage, of people that have gathered in front to try to wrestle down. And the audience is sitting, looking in, saying, what's going to happen? There's this little prologue, there's this little epilogue. The most in the middle is, is poetry and or music about trying to struggle through the question of suffering. Now, someone might be a little off balance and saying, like, how could you say that's not history? Well, um, I think it's probably a dramatic retelling of something that was historical. That's my, that's my guess. And it's scripture, so it's Holy Spirit inspired and filled and given to us for a reason. Jesus read the book of Job and treated it as scripture. Um, and so we know that uh, there's good stuff there. But here's my main case for that it's not street history. When was the last time you were with some people and they showed up and sang at each other for 40 chapters? It's not a thing. Like that doesn't happen. So someone has crafted this story for us. To help us dive into it. And um, it's quite strange. Um, there is a, um, a summary of the book of Job um, that I can't officially recommend um, from South Park. And so, so I may have watched it more than once in prep for this sermon, because that's my kind of sermon prep, apparently. But um, can't officially recommend it, but it isn't entirely um, untrue. So, Just to dive in, chapter one, in the land of Uz, great name by the way, great name. There lived a man whose name was Job. You can see like the curtain come up on the stage, right? This man was blameless and upright. Here's there's a narrator speaking. He has a deep, like FM voice, you know. He was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Listening, uh, th- they are given this guy mountains of praise, blameless. Feared God, shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. This is highly symbolic language. Seven in Jewish numerology usually represents completeness and three usually represents like God's blessing or, or presence. So seven sons, three daughters. Um, and then he has 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. There's the sevens and the threes against. 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. Um, Tens usually have to do with like a lot. Like, you know, there's a whole bunch. Um, And so really rich dude with a lot of kids. And says he was the greatest man among the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes and birthdays. And it would talk about the celebrations they would have and how Job would pray for his kids and sacrifice for them. And then it goes to this odd scene in the courtroom of heaven. Now, it's common for people in that age, they describe spiritual realities in terms of their cultural context. And in their culture, the kings had a courtroom where he would have all of the people that worked for him, you know, come and go as he would do business during the day. And so that's what this author is kind of setting up for us, this kind of like political um, kingly framework. And it says, one day the angels came and presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them, you know, like they do, I guess. It says, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Listen, this is God talking about somebody. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is like a dad who is just beaming, like his kid has just one state, and you're in the break room with him, and you're not leaving until you see pictures. Right? God's just thrilled. He's so pumped about this guy, Job. There's no one on earth like him, blameless and upright. And Satan basically says, does Job fear God for nothing? He goes, have you looked at his life? His life is awesome. Why wouldn't... Why wouldn't he be blameless and upright? You've given him everything. You let me take that away and we'll see what happens. And what's crazy is that God says, okay. God doesn't cause the suffering, but he allows it. And in one day, all of Job's wealth is gone. His servants are put to death. This storm comes and his seven sons and his three daughters are gathered in a house having one of these legendary parties and celebrations and feasts and the house collapses and they all die on the same day and in the same moment. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell on the ground in worship and said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked, I will depart The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, verse 22 is a bit of a a key for for the theme of the rest of the book. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I want you to hold on to that a little bit. So we will know if Job is sinning when he starts doing what? Charging God with wrongdoing, right? And so the question is before us can Job keep his integrity? Can Job keep his integrity in the middle of this incredible, unjustified, senseless suffering? It gets worse from there. His body is blasted with disease and, and boils. Lovely, um, I, I brought pictures, just kidding. Um, and he gets, he gets pottery shards and scrapes them off of him. So you have, you have bloody, covered in boils, naked guy in the dust whose kids just died. And and he's he's sitting on the ground and the red that's just look, that's like everything people usually say about the book of Job, and that's just this page. The next forty chapters are what matters. But that's the part that people don't read. Now what starts to happen is people come forward to Job and start to say, let's talk about how we're gonna respond. How are we gonna make sense of this? How are we gonna think about this? Now, I'm betting you don't know anyone whose life has been like that, but you know people, maybe even you, have had serious, real tragedy come up in your life. And how do people present themselves? How do we make sense of this? First on the scene is Job's wife. And in chapter two, verse eight, his wife, sorry, verse 10, I lost it, 9, there it is, in between 8 and 10. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? This is, this is a blast. Curse God and die. Have you ever had that friend? <laughs> the nuclear option friend? <laughs> right? I mean, just everything's like, well, I guess we're going to have to drown somebody, aren't we? I mean, like... And his wife shows up and he says, why are you holding on to your integrity? Which is the question of the book. Can you hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Here's, here's um, how, how I would put it. Look, when, when the world seems to be falling apart, there is somebody, and can you blame them, that shows up and says, God is the worst. To heck with it. That's the Brett Cheek paraphrase there. <laughs> God is the worst. You know who sucks at his job? God. God. Look around. We, we, got, we got whole countries invading other ones and bombing the population. We got kids that, that die of leukemia. You know, I mean, people rail against the suffering of this world. And one way to respond is to say, God is asleep at the wheel. So let's just tell him what he can do with that and try to live however we can. Job responds to her, and then what happens is three friends come from the nations around. Now, remember, Job, not an Israelite. He has three friends that come from the nations from around the world to him, um, and they start to engage in this conversation. How how are we going to process this? Um, Eliphaz, the Temanite, um, is, is the first one up. And when they, when they get to Job, the first thing they do is they sit with him for seven days and seven nights. There's that symbolic language again. And this is, this is the best thing they do is they're quiet. How, do, how many of you know when someone is in deep suffering, show up, bring a casserole, and shut up. That's when you're doing good. It's when we try to fill the space that usually things start to go off the rails a little bit. And Eliphaz, um, you know, for a few chapters, he, he tries to figure out how to, how to process this and he acknowledges how awesome Job is at the beginning and, and then in like verse 22 of chapter 5, he says, you will laugh at destruction and famine and need not fear the wild animals for you will have a covenant with the stones of the field and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is is secure, at first he tells Job he's awesome, and then basically he says this, look Job, you're a good guy, like really good, it's going to be fine, it's going to the wild animals are going to love you, it, you're going to be like a freaking Disney princess over here, like I know your world's falling apart, and your kids are dead, and you're, you're like, your skin is falling off of you, but you're doing fine, buddy, just hang it, I got you a mug, it says blessed, like, can I cheerlead you a little bit here? And that's one approach. Is the person that shows up and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know it's, I know it's bad. You had ten kids, they were great. You didn't even really remember their names, right? I mean, come on. And you're gonna be fine, buddy. And that's that's one way to approach this. Um, so there's there's Eliphaz. Next next up, chapter eight. Um, these names are so great, by the way. Is Bill Dad the Shuhite. Did you know he's the shortest guy in the Bible? The shoe height. The shoe. <laughs> okay. He's an angry elf. And, and the bill dad hits the scene. And he says things like in chapter eight, verse three, does God pervert justice? Does the almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Chapters. He's processing this. Bill dad shows up and he goes, no, 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 no. It's not that you're going to be fine. This actually does stink. You know, it does. It does. But I figured it out. There's a bad guy and I've located them. It's your kids. It's your kids. I figured out who created this whole problem. And so here's, here's his summary. Look, they deserved it. They must have. Because that's how the world works. He's working backwards with his mental map of the world. Something bad happened, and his mental map of the world says bad things happen to bad people. So a house came in, a house caved in and crushed 10 people, and his mental map backs him up to, oh, they were bad kids. That's how, that's how this must be. And, and it's not uncommon when there are bad things happening in the world for well-meaning people to show up, maybe even inside of ourselves, and say, I've figured out who the villain is. Because it is easier to misidentify a villain than to live with the uncertainty that we live in a broken world. Right? It is psychologically easier to say they're the bad guy than it is to sit with someone who is living in a deeply broken world. Last up, after Bildad, we get Zophar. And Zophar, um, if we could head over to chapter 11. Huh, huh, huh. I'm working my way through 42 chapters here, everybody. Hang on. And uh, he, he spends a few chapters going over some things, and he figures it out. Oh, chapter 11, 14. If you put away the sin that is in your hand, and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift your face and stand firm without fear. Zophar says, I got it, I got it, I got it. It's not your kids, because bad things do happen to bad people, but I notice it's not just them that bad things happen to. You don't seem to be having like a real chipper day yourself here. So, so I think I figured it out. You deserve it. You deserve it. And buddy, you just need to repent. If you would just tell God you're sorry, oh, man. Oh, man, he would would fix you right up. And so just just a few possible responses. Tell God we're done with him. That's one. Uh, Another one is to say it's actually fine. I'd say, we're fine. Let's just move on. We're fine. Dead kids, you know, life's hard. We're fine. Another is to say they're the problem. Another one is to say I'm the problem or you're the problem. And Job, in each one of these, he has this interesting way that after each one speaks, he responds, and he starts each section like trying that philosophy on for size. He kind of seems to have this, maybe you're right. Maybe... Maybe it is gonna be okay, or maybe it is their fault, or maybe it is my fault. And then as he gets through his couple of chapters of of poetry or singing, he gets to the end and he kind of goes, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. And he starts to stand up for his kids or himself. And he he continues to struggle. Um, And then we get to like verse 16, I mean chapter 16 is maybe where some things start to tilt. Uh, Did you ever have some friends that are such good friends um, that you can just let them have it? No one has friends like that? Yes. Okay, a couple of you have friends like that. Chapter 16. I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. You're all bad friends. Will your long-winded speeches never end? Like, just shut up. What ails you that you keep on arguing? And Job, something starts to tilt. And like in verse 7, you know this question of, can he maintain his integrity? Surely God, notice the subject has changed. You have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have shriveled me up. And it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens, that's God, my opponent, fastens on me his piercing eyes. People open their mouths and jeer at me. They strike my cheek and scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All is well with me. I am a good person. All is well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. How comfortable is everybody right now? And Job 16, 17, 18, and through this, this back and forth between him and his friends, they really latch on to the, we found the problem, it's you, especially when he starts to get really angry with God. And at the beginning, twice it says in all this, he did not sin, but now he seems to start to be unraveling because who can take this for forever? Chapter 30 Oh, by the way, in chapter 28, there's this little break. Um, someone starts singing or, or speaking. We don't know who. Um, it's just kind of like the voices from the... And they come out, and um, in my mind, it's like the Oompa Loompas. You know, after like one of the kids turns out to be terrible and they get hauled off, the Oompa Loompas come out and sing a song about the lesson we're supposed to be learning. There's Oompa Loompas in this, just so you know. And, and they come out, and they, they basically say, everyone is really messing this up. That's, that's twenty-eight. And then we get to Job in his final defense. Verse 18, in his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment and throws me into the mud. I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in distress. And what I, I think started off as like him being able to not accuse God of wrongdoing. Guys, if that isn't it, I don't know what is. You know, some people have said, you know, Job never never gets mad at God. Like, ah, ah. Did you stop at chapter 2? He's furious, and he says, I figured out whose fault. It's the big guy. And like in 31, Oh, that someone to hear me, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. He's saying, God, I want to look you in the face I deserve to see the person that has wrecked my life. I want you to show up. And in this moment, I think we could could say that Job has officially crossed that line. Can he take it? Can he take it? Can he take it? Then he can't. And God shows up in chapter 38. There's a guy named Elihu who shows up and talks. Young guy, rambles his mouth. God totally cuts him off. And in 38, God shows up and he says, the Lord spoke to him out of the storm. And he starts saying, God, Job, where were you? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky and when I set the sea's boundaries? And where were you when when I populated the world with the animals? Were you with the wild mountain goat when she gave birth? That's not a question I normally ask people. And he starts to respond to Job, interestingly, with firmness, but not anger, perspective maybe. In chapter 40, God has been going for a while. And the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job said to the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I repay you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. You see, there's this like, God, we want answers. And it's interestingly, when God shows up and Job sees him and hears him, Job says, I have no answer. But I wanted to see you and now I have. And then as things wrap up, the the people that God is severely upset with are the three friends. They get blasted by God Almighty for being on their high horse. And he tells them, you need to sacrifice and repent, and then you need to have Job pray for you to be made right with me again. In chapter 42, Job says, you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, so because of God's presence, he says, therefore I despise myself and repent and dust and ashes. Then Job gets rich again, and all your questions are answered, right? Right? Everybody's good? What is that about? Why is this the the opening story of our scripture? Not in how we've organized our Bible, but in terms of time. What why is this the first question? The first question that people start to wrestle with as we put scripture together are saying, hey, I've checked out the world, kinda sucks. What do we do with that? God, where are you? Where are you in this? Why is this the first question and how do we respond? I mean, just a couple of things that we could pull quickly. First of all, when someone is in the middle of struggling, they're not gonna feel like there's necessarily hope on the other side. They might, they might not, that's pretty normal. Second of all, we need to be with people in suffering without throwing easy answers at them because they're the people that get blasted at the end. It's also the person who has been suffering that seems to, in an odd way, have an intimacy and a boldness with the Lord that we can be totally uncomfortable with. But it's got to be more than that, right? Here's what I would say. Scripture, we could say, opens With a man who is blameless, righteous. There is no one like him on the earth. And he suffers unjustly in a world that is deeply unjust. And the question is, can he take it? And the answer is no. He breaks. And he says, God, I don't need your answers, I just need to see your face. I wanna see you, what are you gonna do about this? And this is the question that opens scripture. And the question is, what is God gonna do about it? And I I wonder, I've been deeply influenced by Tim Mackey and his understanding of this. We've linked a couple of videos where he teaches in the guide on this, if you wanna go see someone talk about it who's better than me at this whole subject. But what what is the deal? Because when we break under suffering, I think God's answer is, I know. I know you can't take it. The best of you couldn't take it. Like Job, he was better than all of us and he couldn't take it. I know you can't take it. So what are we going to do about it? And what we find... Throughout the story of Scripture, is that the Lord who is in the storm and speaks from the storm steps out of heaven himself and lives righteous and blameless. There is no one like him on the earth in Jesus. His friends turn on him, his family is torn from him, his body is bruised, he is nailed, he's separated from God. He says, God, I want to see you. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And the question is, is he going to break? And we find out that even though all of us break in a deeply unjust world, God himself comes to carry our suffering for us because the only one that won't break is God himself. And on the cross, we see the Job that he couldn't be and that we can't be to be able to face an unjust world. And God says, I know your suffering is real and I know you can't take it. So I'll carry it with you. I'll carry it for you. And then we're gonna make a new world together with the resurrection. I think that that is what the book of Job is. It is outlining a person to all of us to say who has the integrity, to take the the injustice and the suffering that this world puts us through ever since we left Eden. And when no one can fill it, God says, I will come and do it for you because I love you. In in Romans, on the other side of of that, as people are trying to make sense of this righteous and blameless one, who was able to carry our suffering for us and make a new way to create a new heaven and a new earth. In and, and verse 6 of chapter 5, it says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, who has, who has the power to be able to take the world as it is? While we were still powerless, Christ, that is God, died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ, God, died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more we will be saved from God's wrath through him. For if, while we were God's enemies, while we were railing against God, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. God says, I will come and start making the world right with you. First, Jesus comes into the world full of suffering and screams alongside us. But unlike us, he is able to hold on to his integrity all the way through. And God says, I know it's not fair. He has allowed suffering on his people and he allows suffering on himself and carries it to the cross to make the world new. Part of, maybe the, the Job's life getting partially restored at the end. Maybe it's this foreshadow of the world to come that God is going to put our world back to rights eventually. And what, when I was talking with Paula on the phone, she said after her daughter Faith died, one of her friends gave her this phrase that she held on to. She said, your suffering is not eternal, even if it lasts your whole life. Your suffering is not eternal even if it lasts your whole life because our life isn't the end. There is life on the other side of this one that will go on forever in a world made right where we have not left Eden and where God has held heaven and earth together by his love and we have said yes to him. I'm ready for that day to come. I think Job sets up all of the drama of history and says what are we going to do with the fact that we can't take the world that we've created in our sin? And the God who's in the storm says, I've got an idea. I'll come down to you. I will suffer with you and for you. And through my resurrection, we will make a new world together. Now I'm in. And I want to be a part of that work with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We, we honestly can't take it. I mean, a lot of days we get glimpses of, of Eden, of heaven and earth kissing. A beautiful day outside, snuggling on the couch with a kid. Great meal with friends. We get this glimpse of heaven and earth together, of Eden again but most of the time we're living out in a world that is hard to varying degrees. Jesus, I am so grateful that you did not stay up on the clouds and wait for us to figure out how to get back to you. But you pursued us all the way to the cross, to the empty tomb, and to a new heaven and a new earth and you invite us on that journey. God, help us to lay down our cheap philosophies and our attempts at making the world snap together and make sense for us so we can get through another day without thinking about it. God, we lay that down. And we say, we need your presence. Our our ears have heard about you. God, we... We need to see you with our eyes. We want your presence, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. Amen.
0: If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out and we hope to see you soon.